Father, thank you that you are the God of revival. We have been praying for it. We've been fasting for it, for our church, for our sister churches here in Gunnison, that you would bring revival to this valley, that you would bring an awakening, that the lost here, Lord, would hear your voice, would respond to your spirit moving in them, drawing them to you through Christ our Savior. We just pray for that, Lord. I continue to pray for that. And I pray for our time tonight, that as we dive into Judges chapter 6, you would be the voice that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 5 was the song of Deborah. After Israel's victory over Jabin and Sisera contains one of my favorite passages, not just in the book of Judges, but in the whole Bible, when Jael killed Sisera by driving a tent peg through his temple into the ground while he was napping. Yes. The land had rest for 40 years, but that rest ended beginning the fourth cycle of apostasy in Israel. So we pick up in chapter 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midians would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land and destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. Go figure. And they're delivered into the hand of Midian to the Amalekites and to the people of the east. Midian's oppression only lasted seven years. Some of the other oppressions that we've seen so far lasted longer. But it was very severe in comparison. So the other oppressions, you know, they had to pay tribute. Uh, but basically they were allowed to live their lives. With this one, the, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, they would move in. They would either steal or destroy their crops. They would bring in their own livestock to eat up whatever was left. They would either kill or steal the Israelites' livestock, leaving them impoverished. So this was pretty bad. Now, Midian and Amalek were typically nomadic. and they, So they just moved into the land. We'll see when we get to chapter 7 and 8 that there were hundreds of thousands of them. So this just wasn't like, you know, a few hundred guys or a few thousand guys. This was the whole nation moving around. Um, interestingly enough, Midian were the people of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. It is to these people that Moses fled when he left Egypt in Exodus chapter 2. So at one point in time, the Israelites and the Midianites would have been at least cordial to one another, if not friendly or even allies. But here, no longer. Verse 7. And it came to pass, 
And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So when Israel cries out to God, he sends them this prophet to rebuke them for their disobedience. All of this had come upon them because they refused to obey God. And as we know, it's often the same for us. And God doesn't just rebuke. He teaches. He instructs. He calls us back to himself. And even though he rebuked them through the prophet, when we get into verse 11, we're going to see that he raises up a deliverer anyway. And that makes me think of something simple. That God doesn't love us and work in our lives because we deserve it. Or because we're great and wonderful. Or because we're always obedient. And there's certainly blessings and benefits of being obedient to the Lord. We've talked about that quite extensively. But we can't earn God's favor. His unfailing love toward us is because he is love. He loves us at our worst. He loves us at our best. No matter what happens or what we've done, when we come to him as our father, through Jesus, our mediator, he will always be there for us. I think this is put beautifully in Romans chapter 8. That's why I feel compelled to share it with you. Romans 8.31 what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? This is from the New Living Translation Bible. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us a right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love that passage. Just love it. Did the Israelites deserve having God raise up a deliverer? No more than we deserve to have Christ die on this cross for our sins. Did they deserve after, right, we don't even see repentance. They just cried out to the Lord. 
Do they deserve to have God show up and do this? No. And if we're honest, we don't either. It's all about his grace. His mercy, his compassion, his love. It's beautiful. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abirzite, no, the Abiez, Abiez, that guy, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Who, me? No. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianite as one man. So Gideon is hiding in a wine press. Threshing wheat in there because he knows if anybody from Midian sees this, they're going to show up and they're going to steal their food. And it's while he's hiding, quivering in his proverbial boots, the angel of the Lord shows up. Now this, of course, it's, it's the angel of the Lord and then it says the Lord. This, of course, we, we've talked about this, a theophany or a Christophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, so I personally believe this is Jesus, and we're going to get a little more evidence for that in a bit. But he says, Mighty man of valor, go in this might of yours. And I love that. Because he was calling Gideon by who he would become, not by who he was. And he does the same with us. Our identity is in Christ. We have not reached the fullness of our identity in him, but we are in the process of moving towards it. I actually learned a new word this week. Uh, maybe it was last week, but it made me very excited. Uh, the word is eschatological dualism. Say that three times fast. We know eschatological or eschatology speaks of end times. And dualism, right, two. So eschatological dualism means that both our current position in Christ and our future fullness in Christ that we were moving towards are both seen at the same time. Right? We've talked about positional sanctification and practical sanctification. Positionally, we are righteous before God, justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Practically, well, we don't always live that out, right? We're growing into that more, hopefully more and more every day, week, month, year, and so on. But we're not there yet. We all have a ways to go. It's the same with our identity in Christ. We are in Christ now. Our identity is in Christ now. But we are in the process of becoming more like him, getting closer to who he is and the fullness of who he wants us to be. And this is exactly how God sees Gideon. He didn't look at him and go, hey, Freddy cat, threshing your wheat in the rind press, afraid of the Midianites. 
get up, get out of the wine press, and go to war. No, mighty man of valor. He wasn't a mighty man of valor yet. But God saw who he could be, not who he was. And this again shows how much God loves us because he sees us differently than we see ourselves. He often sees us differently than the way other people see us. We often judge by appearances, either ourselves or others, right? We might judge by outward appearance. We might judge by success or failure. Uh, we might judge by a host of other things, right? How I feel today. Do I feel bad today? Well, am I really saved? You know, I feel great today. I'm a super Christian now. Whatever it might be, this isn't what God does. Remember when God sent Samuel to get David and anoint him as king? In 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel, sorry, chapter 16. First boy comes in, the first of Jesse's sons, a strapping lad, tall, handsome. Samuel's like, wow, that's got to be the guy. God says, nope. Does that with all of his brothers. And finally he goes, isn't there anyone else? And Jesse goes, well, yeah, the shrimp's out in the, in the field with the sheep. Call him in. We're not sitting down. We're not eating until he's here. And he shows up. And God says, this is him. You look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. So he sees everything in us. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He knows what we can become in Christ. He willingly forgives our past failures when we come to him in repentance, and he helps us move forward. So my encouragement to you and me, because I need it too, let's not look at ourselves and others from a human perspective, but let's always put the way God sees us first. So Gideon asked him, why is this happening? Where are all the miracles? Where's all this stuff we've heard about? Now, God doesn't answer him. He just moves forward with what he's asking Gideon to do. Um, but we know why, because we've read the last, you know, 15 verses. It said, then Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The prophet came and rebuked them for the evil they were doing. So even though God doesn't answer Gideon, we're aware of what's going on. And then he asks him, how will I know? Right? How can I save Israel? And God says, I'm going to go with you. What encouragement that is. I'm going to go with you. And then he says, but wait a second. My family is least in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. I don't think you got the right guy. And so I wonder, is this uh, him trying to make an excuse? Is this humility? Is this a cry of weakness? And God answers again, I will be with you. There's a phrase, a Latin phrase, that was coined during the Reformation, Coram Deo. I like that phrase. It literally means living under the face of God. Living under the face of God. You can translate it a little more loosely that we are constantly in the presence of God and we should live accordingly. And the interesting thing about that phrase, and, and I know I've talked about this before, so I don't really want to harp on it. we got more to get to. But the interesting thing about that phrase is we can have an awareness constantly of the presence of God. We can have an awareness constantly of the power of God working in our lives. 
we can have an awareness that we are never alone. That to me is wonderfully reassuring. So personally, I think it's a bit of humility and I think it's a cry of weakness and I'm reminded, 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when Paul cried out to the Lord, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore, most gladly. I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 17. Then he said to him, so Gideon said to the angel, to God, Surely, oh, sorry, I, I jumped back up. If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, an unleavened bread from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace, Jehovah Shalom. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So Gideon says, All right, if it's really you, and you really want me to do this, Stay here until I bring an offering back. So he goes in, he prepares the offering, he brings it out. And Jesus, right, because this is pretty much Jesus, an Old Testament appearance, pre-incarnate, says, all right, well, put the meat, put the bread on the rock, pour the broth out over it. Then he touches the rock with his staff, the rock bursts into flame, and all of a sudden Gideon's like, uh-oh, <laughs> I've seen God face to face. I'm in trouble. Uh, the interesting thing about this sacrifice is it would have been a burnt offering, which was a sacrifice for sin, a peace offering, which was a fellowship offering that, that you would make to have fellowship with the Lord, and then a drink offering, which was also a fellowship offering. So the Lord reassured him that he wouldn't die, and we get one of the compound names of God, one of the most, well, I mean, they're all important, but this one is fantastic. The Lord is peace, Jehovah Shalom. Peace or fear not. How often we need these words from God. We need his comfort. When we're fearful or we're struggling with something and he says peace, when we have anxiety and worry about the future or something, and he says fear not, we need that. Now, something that you'll probably notice as you read through the Bible, as we continue studying through the Bible, oftentimes when God says fear not, well, it's because the person's afraid. Oftentimes when he says peace, well, it's because... They don't have peace in that moment. And 
God doesn't want him to be afraid. God knows what he's going to do. He knows how he's going to take care of this. And he wants Gideon to have confidence, not in himself, but in Jehovah Shalom. Jesus told us in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isaiah 41, 10, one of my favorite verses. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Mm. Jehovah Shalom, folks. That is our God. We can have peace in the midst of the most unbelievably difficult circumstances. Not because we have confidence in ourselves or we think we're going to figure out how to get out of it, but because he's good and he's going to take care of it even when we don't know. Verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which he had built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore on that day he called him Jerebu Jerubbaal, sorry, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. And all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, gathered together. And they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and Abiyar, those guys, his family, gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So God's first real commandment, he told him, I'm going to send you out against these people, but he hadn't told him to go just yet. His first commandment is tear down this altar to Baal, tear down the grove beside it, which would have been an Asherah pole, uh, and we've talked about those. Gideon does so, but he does it at night because he's afraid. He's afraid of the people in his father's house. He's afraid of the people in the city. But he was still obedient. God didn't tell him to do it in the middle of the day, right? So he was a little scared, but he still did it. Uh, there's a lesson in there. <laughs> Oftentimes, God's going to ask us to do things that are fr that's frightening. We should still do it. So then he offers the second bull, the seven-year-old bull, on the altar built for the Lord on the same spot. The men of the city get up the next day, and they said, Who has dared to do this? And they find out it's Gideon, so they go to Joash, and they say, Bring him out. We're going to kill him. And I like Joash. 
he steps up for his boy. And he says, uh-uh. If Baal's a god, let him plead for himself. But you ain't, you ain't touching my son. That's not quite how he says it. So Joash renames his son Gideon to Jerubal, or Jerubal, however you want to pronounce it, which means let Baal contend. Something interesting about that, false gods need human defense. Right? Our God, the one true God, does not need us to defend him. He is perfectly capable of defending himself. Uh, I've heard it put this way. God is like a lion. You don't defend a lion in a cage. What do you do? You open the cage. You just got to let the lion out. We don't have to defend him. We just have to get out of his way, and he'll defend himself. This section ends with the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east gathering in Jezreel, and it really boggles my mind that the Amalekites are still alive. Several times the Israelites have been commanded to wipe these people out. And even though Gideon, by God's grace and power, is about to deliver Israel out of their hand, still don't wipe out the Amalekites. They're still around later on when Saul is king, hundreds of years later. Gideon is filled with the Holy Spirit, and we discussed that before, right? They had a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't dwell with them constantly the way he does with us. So he needed the power of God's Holy Spirit at that time, so the Holy Spirit filled him. And then he calls Israel to battle and several of the other tribes, uh, like Zebulun, Naphtali, uh, and Asher, along with his own family throughout Manasseh, came up to meet them. Now, we're still not going to go to battle. These last four verses are one of the places where we see um, one of the things people remember about Gideon most. Right? Everybody remembers that he defeated the enemy with 300 people. Right? God did that. But the other thing people tend to remember when they talk about Gideon is his fleece. Uh, so in verse 36, we pick that up. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early in the next morning, he squeezed the fleeces together and wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. You know, maybe, maybe that was a fluke. Maybe the fleece could gather some dew, even though there wasn't a lot of dew. So let's try this again, Lord. I pray just one more, once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. What I see this as is a lapse in faith. God shows up, mighty man of valor, go deliver the people of Israel. Why? Well, how do I know? I'll, all right, you stay here. I'm going to bring an offering. Then I'll know that you, this really you. He brings him the offering. God sets the offering on fire with fire coming out of a rock, which had to be pretty cool to see. He tears down the altar of Baal. 
He calls on the fe his fellow Israelites. They all show up. All right, Gideon, we'll follow you. And he's like, hmm, may maybe I heard God wrong. <laughs> all right, Lord, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And God goes, okay. And it works. At that point, Gideon should have been like, man, well, all right, God, don't be angry, but make the fleece dry and the ground wet. And I kind of would have loved to have seen the look on his face when he woke up that second morning. <laughs> I mean, was it like, oh, man, now I got to go do this. God, in his patience and compassion, answers both times. So now, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to do this. This is not how we determine the will of God. We are commanded to pray. We're commanded to read the word of God, to listen to and obey God, to listen for and obey the Spirit. But I don't think we're supposed to test God like this. I've had a lot of people over the years say, well, I was praying about this and I didn't know what to do, so I just put out a fleece. And every time they do that, I cringe a little bit. It's my daughter's favorite word. Cringe. Right? I'm, I'm just like, ugh. Now, keep in mind, I'm not judging. I've done it too. I've done it many times. I've done it more times than I care to admit. But I do think it shows a lack of faith. Now, I've told this story before, but maybe Aaron didn't hear it. When we came here, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was telling us to come to Gunnison. I had to wait on you all to figure that out a little bit. But, but I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I love my beautiful wife. She, she was struggling a little bit. A little bit. Well, if we're going to move, this was, this was, so this was the fleece we ended up putting out. If we're going to move, I need a job. If we're going to move, I need a place to live. If we're going to move, well, well, there, was, there was a couple more. I don't remember what they all were. But the job and the place to live were the two big ones. And um, you guys offered me the job on Friday. We went shopping. On the way back from shopping, she got a call for an interview. And then we came, and then our house worked out. She got that job. And so one day, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. And a week later, the ground was wet and the fleece was dry. And we knew. So my question becomes, why does God put up with us? <laughs> right? We read the, and, and you know, and I'm going to admit, God has never given me this clear of direction where he stood in front of me, set a rock on fire, and told me exactly what I was supposed to do. Right? I've never quite had that experience. But I've, I've whined and moaned at God on several occasions when he's asked me to do stuff that I didn't want to do. And, and I've, even though I don't encourage it, I have set out that fleece. And, All right, Lord, well, if you really want me to do this, then you'll do this, that, and the other thing. And God does this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, argh! <laughs> now I don't have any excuses. Now I've got to do it. And so why? And I think Psalm 103, 14 gives us a clue. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're weak. He knows we struggle. He knows 
our dumbness. He knows all of it. It's not a surprise to him. He knows when he asks us to do something, how we're going to respond. He knows if we're going to be afraid, if we're going to have doubts, if we're going to delay obedience because we're not sure how things are going to work out. He knows all of that. He knows all of that ahead of time. He, he asks us anyway. You know, and we can choose to be disobedient. I don't recommend it. Or we can choose to step out in faith. And from a human perspective, there are times that stepping out in faith seems risky. Because we don't know how it's going to turn out. But that's okay. Because God wants us to be willing to trust him enough to risk. So my question, and not my question, my next thought, well, if putting out a fleece isn't really commanded, how are we supposed to ascertain the will of God or to know for sure that we have heard from God and are following his will? Because, you know, sometimes he does make it clear. He gives us a scripture. He, he makes it, you know, we're listening and the Holy Spirit's pointing and the doors are opening and, and, he, and we're just like, yeah, that's, it's right over, that's, we're going that way. And other times, he gives us a nudge and a direction. I always think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Go down to the desert. Um, why? <laughs> right? No, just, just go down to the desert. Philip goes, okay. He goes down to the desert. See the chariot? Go up by the chariot. Okay. Right? And once he got there, it was clear. So sometimes, we won't know until we step out in faith. So what do we do? Well, I think Jesus told us. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, the interesting thing about that is, you know, I say a lot, context, context, context. When you put Ask and it will be given to you, and, and the following phrases, in context, it's in context of being obedient to the word of God. It's in context of being holy. It's in the context of following Christ. So if, if we're not being obedient to the word of God, if we're not seeking him to help us be holy, I mean, just a few verses before in chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, if we're not doing those things, then asking, seeking, and knocking probably won't do us a whole lot of good. But if we are doing those things, we can ask. We can ask God to lead us. We can seek his will. We can seek him in prayer. We can seek him in his word. And we can seek him by listening to the Holy Spirit. And then we can knock. And God will open the door. And if God doesn't open the door, then we shouldn't try to force it. But if he wants us to go through the door, guess what? He's going to open it. Or at the very least, unlock it. He's going to do that for them, for all of us. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Ask him to lead you. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Ask him, seek him, and knock. 
And he's, he's going to show us which way to go. So in the end, is it a sin to put out a fleece? I don't think so. I don't think it's a sin. I don't even necessarily think it's wrong. Um, because I've done it. <laughs> is it right to put out a fleece? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. What I do know is I wouldn't recommend it. Um, even though I've done it. What I would recommend is asking God, seeking his will by seeking him in his word and prayer and trusting God to open the right doors and close the wrong ones. Uh, I say this full well, knowing that there will come a time, it might be tomorrow for all I know, that God's going to go, hey, Jason, do that. All right, Lord, well, if you really want me to do that, you know, it's possible. The most important thing, and whether we put out a fleece or not, however it is that we are seeking to discern God's will in our lives, that when we hear him speak, that we step out in faith and do it. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Next week, we will finish the rest of Gideon's term as a judge in Israel, his defeat of Midian and Amalek with the power of God on his side. Uh, it is it's so cool, and uh, it'll be fun to study. But that'll be next week. Until then, let's pray. Father, we thank you for how much you love each of us. I thank you, God, that you see us so much differently than we see ourselves. You see us as who we are in Christ, as who we can become in Christ. You deal with our weaknesses. You deal with our failures. But you do it in love. Help us, God, to walk into the people you have called us to be. I thank you, Father, that you are Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. And I pray for each person here, for the various things going on in our lives, that you would give us peace. Help us to ask you to lead us, to seek you, and to knock and know that you're going to open the right doors. And help each of us, God, to step out in faith, as you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.